0: Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit after a, an extended break, and of course that means you're going to get five weeks of sermons today. So, no, not quite. Uh, buckle up. Um, well, we are. We, our mission verse for our church is Colossians two verse twenty-eight. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that every man may that we may present every man complete in Christ. Um, and then at the beginning of the year, we, we embarked on a little mini-series just to unpack that, to remind us of our mission. And uh, back on the 8th of January, we looked at the first part. We proclaim Him. We proclaim Christ. What does that mean? And we saw from uh, verses 15 to 18 that it means we proclaim Christ as Lord of all. Lord of creation and Lord of the church and today we will look at proclaiming Christ to be reconciled Christ is the one who to whom all things must be reconciled so turn in your bibles to colossians chapter 1 verse well i'll read from verse 15 uh, colossians chapter 1 from verse 15 uh, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will become will come to have first place in everything then verse nineteen our text forward this morning through to verse twenty three for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven and all although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all the creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And so this morning we want to proclaim Christ, proclaim Him as the reconciler, as, as the God-made, God, not God-made, God-appointed reconciler of all things. And the world is in desperate need for reconciliation because there is enmity between man and God. There is enmity between men, nations, and there is even enmity between man and creation in nature. And so we are in desperate need of reconciliation. Uh, and people have tried many different ways in order to, to try and f- to get themselves into a right relationship, whether that is with God through false religion or with one another uh, through all kinds of, of uh, uh, attempts, even with nature. Uh, where people would would uh, I suppose uh, go down the path of of uh, uh, either worshiping nature or being active in uh, in for instance climate change and all those kinds of things. So somehow they think that that is the right thing to do and that that will make them right. That will be uh, put them in good stead. But um, this is not a new thing. This has been going on ever since the fall. Uh, and specifically in Colossians. Uh, the reason why Paul wrote the way he did was because of a particular problem, a heresy that plagued the church. It was a, it was a sort of an early Gnosticism. The Gnosticism, the teaching of the Gnostics that uh, believed that they, the world uh, was, was evil. Material things were evil, but spiritual things were, were, were good, were holy, were pure. And, and of course, God is the absolute holy and pure being, and that he, as such, could not have made or created the earth. Uh, they believe that from God proceeded a number of emanations, a number of lesser gods, each one a little bit uh, less glorious as the, fir- the, the the previous one, and it's one of these lesser gods that they believe created the earth. Uh, and for them to, to be saved, you need to work your way through each of these lesser gods in to in order to reach finally and be reconciled with, with God. And so for that you needed special knowledge, you needed um, uh, to adhere to certain rules and, and, and to, to to practice certain certain practices. And um and so for for them is is uh, they said that Jesus was, it's good, you, you have to have Jesus, you have to have the gospel, you have to come to him. But they saw him as one of these lesser emanations, and now there is some greater knowledge that you need to add to Jesus. You need to buy, uh, we see that in chapter 2, uh, adding philosophy, the human philosophy, their understandings of things, certain rules like circumcision by holding to, to a certain diet or celebrating certain feasts, Uh, or to practice asceticism where there's a harsh treatment of your body, or even angel worship, one of these lesser gods, you need to appease them and and you need the secret knowledge attainable through through visions. Uh, That is what you need to add to Jesus in order to progress closer to God and be reconciled to him. And of course, Paul says absolute rubbish. Christ is the one who created all things. He is the Lord of creation, and he is the Lord of of the church. And if you want to be reconciled to God, then be reconciled to Christ. That is Paul's argument. And so this morning we will see him exhorting the Colossians and also us by extension that we need to proclaim Christ when we as a church, when we say, Colossians 1.28 is our mission that we need to proclaim Christ, that one of the things that we need to proclaim is reconciliation. Man can be reconciled to God. All things will be reconciled to God. And so we'll see in, the, in this passage, verses 19 to 23, that we see uh, that Christ is God's plan for reconciliation. Christ is really addresses the need that man has for reconciliation, that Christ uh, uh, really serves us and helps us to reach the goal of reconciliation, and finally that Christ, faith in Christ is the path of reconciliation. Uh, but let me pray for us, and then we'll get into our message. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you have blessed us, Lord, with, with the truth. As we've heard this morning, Lord, your word is is truth. Christ is the truth. And Lord, we come this morning and pray that your spirit would implant the truth into our hearts, that we would know, that we would believe, and that we would be transformed by your word. Lord, you say that your word would not return to you void or empty, but will accomplish the very things that you have purposed for it. And we pray this morning that your purposes for your word this morning would be fulfilled in our lives. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. So first of all, we'll look at God's plan for reconciliation. Verses 19 reads, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood on the, of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And so the, the, the joy for us is, as Christians, as believers, is that we can proclaim the pleasure of God. The pleasure of God. It pleased God. He willed it that the fullness, first of all, of God would dwell in Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that Jesus is the God-man and that He is God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. And he, we read here that the fullness of, the fullness dwelt in, in him. Uh, in Colossians uh, 2.9, it actually reads that the fullness of deity dwelt in him in bodily form. And so basically what Paul is saying is, is Jesus Christ is God. God, he's, he's God incarnate. And the fullness really is, is, a, is, a, is a strange way of, of, of explaining that, but he's, he's basically using a, a catchword of the Gnostics. The, the, they believe that you need to come through the fullness of all these lesser gods in order to reach God, and you need to have the fullness of all the knowledge that you gain on, on the way before you can be reconciled to God. But Paul says no. No. If you are reconciled to Christ, you are reconciled to God. The fullness of God, the fullness of deity dwells in Him in bodily form. And so it says that it was the good pleasure of God the Father for the fullness to dwell in Him and through that to reconcile all things to Christ. Of course, that implies that not everything is in the right relationship with God. And of course, we know that, and although Paul does not uh, state it explicitly here, we know from, from text elsewhere that sin entered the creation in Genesis 3 and really disrupted the creative order that God has made. Uh, sin marred the image of God in man and, and sin bro- brought a curse on the earth. Um, therefore, man is in rebellion against God. Man is in conflict with with one another. There are strife and conflicts and wars between men and nation, and there is disharmony in creation, because we have all these natural disasters. We just have an example of that up in in Turkey, where where there's this massive earthquake. Nature is not supposed to be like that. God did not design it. It's the, the sin that has caused that to happen, and we read of, of course, of floods and famines and and fires and all kinds of things. So, even even creation is not reconciled to Christ at this time. But God was pleased to reconcile all things to Christ, the God-Man. All things, you ask? Yes. All things, and we need to unpack this a little bit so that we can understand it properly. We first need to understand, okay, the what, the how, and the who. The what is reconciliation. So the question is, what is reconciliation? Well, reconciliation, the the root word of reconciliation means to change. And that word has then been developed really to, 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 to signify the change that happens in a relationship between People, usually uh, a change that happened between uh, two groups that were at enmity with one another, hostility. And so you move away from hostility towards friendship, towards peace. And so reconciliation is a change in relationship uh, from enmity to amity, from being an enemy to being a friend. And in the Bible, reconciliation. The direction of reconciliation is always from God towards man. It's not the other way around. God is the one who initiates reconciliation. God is the one who acted out and made it possible for us to reconcile. And we see that in Romans 5.10. He says, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And earlier on, verse 6 of Romans 5, we read that, While we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, while we were yet sinners, that is still acting against God, against His will, Christ died for us. God is the one who initiated the reconciliation process. And how was this achieved? Well, of course, by the blood of his cross. We, we know that it is through the saving work of Jesus Christ that he will reconcile all things to himself. We read in verse 20 through the blood of his cross and verse 22 through Christ's fleshly body. Again, you can see the emphasis here on the physical because the Gnostics have denied both the deity of Christ but also his humanity because God cannot be a, uh, in a human form because that would be uh, against what they believed. And so they actually believed that, that, that the Spirit of God came upon um, Jesus at a point in time, and he was not really the God-man who Scripture uh, uh, describes to us. And so this reconciliation was to be brought about through the saving work of Christ on the cross, Now, the difficult question, who is reconciled to God? Well, it tells us all things. All things on heaven and in earth. Oh, well, other way around. On earth and in heaven. Uh, What about fallen angels? Are they reconciled to God? Well... We know that there is no redemption for fallen angels. Hebrews 2 makes that clear. He says, Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he may render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Verse 16, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. There is no redemption for fallen angels. So how are they reconciled to God? Well, the devil and his deputies, they have been reconciled through judgment. Christ vanquished them on the cross. He forcefully brought them in submission to himself, to the right relationship to him. They have been rebelling against him, and on the cross they had to bow before him. Because we read that later on in Colossians two fifteen, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And of course, in Philippians two verse ten and eleven, we read that. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That is, Jesus is God. And so fallen angels are reconciled or have been reconciled to Christ through the cross that being their judgment, that they refuse to bow the knee to them, but he has removed that which, which was they used to accuse mankind, and now they have to bow before him and confess him as ruler, as master, as king, as God. What about creation? Will that be reconciled? To God, unto Christ. And of course, we understand that to be true, that even creation, physical creation, will be reconciled to Christ. Romans 8, you can turn there if you like. Romans 8, verse 20 to 22, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery. To corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And so he says that even even the the, the curse that is upon creation will be lifted or uh, has been lifted really in the death of Christ and the consummation of that is yet to come and we see I, I believe we see part of that, Fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, where there is where there will be uh, amazingly uh, uh, changes that happens in in nature. Uh, there are so many passages: Isaiah two, Isaiah eleven, Isaiah thirty, Isaiah thirty five, sixty, sixty five. Uh, I'll just I'll just mention a few. It talks about. In Isaiah 30, that he will give you rain for for the seed which you will sow on the ground. This is, of course, prophecy to Israel. And bread from the field of the ground, and it will be rich and plenteous. On the day your livestock will graze in, with, in roomy pastures, Also the oxen and the donkeys which will, will work the ground will eat salted father, which has been winnowed and so, shoveled and forked. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill there will be streams running with waters on the day of that great slaughter when the towers fall. At that day the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days. On the day the Lord binds up and fractures people and heals the bruise which he has inflicted. And so this is talking about after the judgment uh, that has been poured out on Israel, the restoration, is that it will be a a time of of plenty. The physical transformations continues really in in chapter 35, uh, both in, in, in nature and human existence. And in chapter 65, he announces a new heavens and a new earth, which are really to be applied to the millennial kingdom and not to the new heavens and new earth as we understand it as in Revelation. And the reason I'm saying this is just what has happened there. In, in chapter 65 of Isaiah, we read that there will be no more infants dying. Well, that can't speak of the eternal state because there is no death in the eternal state, nor will old men cease to live out their days. Again, a reference to death and those who die young would be considered cursed. So speaking about a time where there will be this great fruitfulness, this great blessedness, this great changes in nature, and yet they will at the same time be be rejoicing. Why? Because their infants will not die uh, yet or die young, Uh, and, and old men will live out their days and and young people who are dying will be considered cursed. And then, of course, there are changes in Isaiah 65:25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. And the dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And that will continue for that period until all things are subjected to Christ until all his enemies are under his feet. And we read that in Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands the kingdom of God to the Father, and when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he will put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Basically what he's saying is that right at the end, after everything has been subjected to Christ as king, He will turn around and offer that up to God the Father as a loving gift. And so all would be reconciled. And then the end comes. Then God will create his new heavens and new earth. Because the first heavens and the first earth will pass away, Revelation 21 tells us. Uh, We see also some significant changes and differences between the new heavens and the new earth of the eternal state, which I think is what Revelation is speaking about then what it is in the millennial kingdom. We read in chapter 21 of Revelations, verse 2, there will be no sea, there will be no more separation, no more alienation from God, because he will dwell among his people, verse 3. There will be no more death, verse 4. All things will be made new, verse 5. There will be no, be no sin or sinners, verse 8. Then... The the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, are are really described as a majestic city in which there will be no sun. No sun or moon is needed. Well, we read in the millennial part that the sun will shine seven times brighter and the moon will be as bright as the sun. So it can't speak of the same period. Uh, And so then in chapter 22, verse 5, there will be no more night for God will illuminate the new heavens and the new earth. And so proclaiming Christ's reconciliation is to preach our future inheritance. It's to preach Christ's rule on this earth and also to finally the creation of a new heavens and a new earth for all those who are reconciled to him. So he will reconcile fallen angels to himself through judgment. He will reconcile the earth to himself through his work on the cross. And of course, all things include human beings, all created humans. So, does that mean Christ died for all people? If we believe that then you have to believe in universalism, that everybody will be saved. But Scripture is is very clear. The doctrine of judgment and the doctrine of eternal punishment, the doctrine of hell is very clear in Scripture, and it's for those who refuse to come to Christ, who, 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 who has not been reconciled to Christ so we, we have to look at passages. So how do we understand this? And another passage that speaks specifically about reconciliation and then also mentions the extent of that is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. So please turn there. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. Read as follows. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, That one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so one died for all, so all died, or therefore all died. You say, well, that's it, Francis, he died for all. Well, no, no, look carefully. He died for all so that those who died would live for him, might live for him. So keep your fingers in 2 Corinthians 5 and just flip over to to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we read that in verse 3, this is of course speaking about us not... uh, Continuing on in sin when when Christ has as uh, when grace has increased end of chapter five uh, where sin reigned in death even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life uh, and then he asks so shall we sin so the grace may increase and he says may it never be for do you not know verse three that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so what Paul is saying there is is that when we, those who come to faith in Christ, those who are baptized by the Spirit into his body has been regenerated born again from above, have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, has been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have been baptized into the body of Christ. And because you have been baptized into the body of Christ, because He died, you died. And because He was raised to life, you were, in a sense, raised to life. And so going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have to understand it that one died for all, therefore all died. So what is Paul is saying there is, the one who died for all, he died for all who died when Christ died. Does that make sense? Christ died for all, and the all is all who died when he died. Meaning going back to Romans 6, when those who have been baptized into him, are the ones who died, are all the ones who died with him. And it is they that who now live must live for him in the newness of life. And so all there does not mean all without exception. It means all those who have been baptized, into Christ, who died with him. All those who have been foreknew, who have been chosen by God in eternity past, all those who were made children of God, not by blood, not by your heritage, not by The will of the flesh, not by your own self. You cannot born yourself or make yourself a child of God. God has to do that. Just like you were not born by your own will, you cannot be born spiritually by your own will. God has to born you or give birth to you spiritually. Nor by the will of man. Someone else can't make you a believer, make you a child of God. It is by the will of God. That's John 1, verse 12 and 13. And so all things, all humans, does not include all people without exception. Going back to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, we read, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is our ministry. That is what He's given to us. We have to proclaim reconciliation to the world. Then verse 19, namely, what is reconciliation? He's going to tell us, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed the To us the word of reconciliations. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Here it says, well, France, here it says Christ has reconciled the world to himself. So again, the question is: Does the world there refers to everybody in or on the earth? Does it mean all people without exception? And it can't mean that for two reasons. First, the immediate context. Verse 19 says, Christ reconciled the world to himself then. What? what? What follows? Not counting their trespasses against them. That means forgiving them. That means removing their sin as far as the east is from the west. That means Casting their sin in the depths of the seas, never to be remembered again. It speaks of actual reconciliation. Not potential reconciliation. That that language is not in the passage, making it possible for us to be reconciled because God or Christ has died for us. But he says... He reconciles the world. Who are the world? Those whose sins he has forgiven. Is everybody forgiven in this world? If you believe yes, then you have to believe that everybody will be saved. That there is no place like hell or judgment. Alternatively, you have to believe that this, the word world here does not mean everyone without exception. But it means everyone without distinction, all without distinction. That means God does not favor one group. He does not favor the Jews over the Gentiles. He does not favor the slave over the master. He does not favor male over females. Everyone is able to be reconciled to God through Christ. And so that's the first reason. The immediate context makes it clear that the reconciliation is for those whom God has forgiven in Christ Jesus. And the second one is, again, as I said before, it is the, the doctrine of judgment and the doctrine of hell that is so clearly taught in Scripture. I mean, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the, for the gate is wide and the a way broad that leads to what? Destruction. And there are many... Who enter through that? For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him, in Christ, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Revelations 20 verse 15 And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so the world cannot mean everyone or all without exception. Of course, world, if you just do a a study with a concordance and look at the word, how it's used throughout the Bible, its meaning depends on the context. When I mean, Jesus said, God so loved the world. And then 1 John 1 2 says, Don't love the world. Okay. What do we do with that? And in 2 Corinthians 5:19, world does not mean all without exception, but all without distinction. Another example of world that just came to mind is in John 12, 19 the Pharisees were complaining and saying, the world is going after Jesus. Does that mean everybody at that time? No, it's, just, it's, it's, it's an expression that was used. You have to understand how words are used within the context in which they appear. And so all of that to say is, is God took pleasure in the fullness of him to dwell in Christ in bodily form. And it took pleasure to reconcile all things to himself. Now that will be either all things in a redemptive way when we come to him through faith, when he's the one who draws us, who calls us, he's the one who quickens us, he's the one who regenerates us. Those are things that God does. We, we don't do that. We don't regenerate ourselves. It's only after he has regenerated us that we can respond to him in faith. And yet we are called to be ambassadors proclaiming the reconciliation of Christ. We don't know who he has reconciled to himself. Our task is to proclaim it as the pleasure of God. God wants you to be reconciled with Him. Please be reconciled. Come to Him. Listen to Him. Believe in Him. Bow before Him. And so we proclaim the plan of God's reconciliation and we proclaim the need for reconciliation. And to proclaim the need for reconciliation is we as a church need to proclaim man to be a sinner and in need of a savior. We preach that all men have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We preach that man is sinful from birth, from conceived in the womb of his mother. We preach that man is dead in his sin and his trespasses, under the sway of the devil, disobedient, indulging in his lust of his flesh and mind, and by nature are children of wrath. That is our natural state. We are born and we are born under the wrath of God because we are sinful people. We have a sinful nature. We preach that man is walking in the futility of his fallen mind, darkened by his understanding, excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of his ignorance, because of the hardness of his heart having become callous, given over to sensuality and for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. We pre- preach all men to be depraved. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There's all have turned away together. They have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. So when we proclaim Christ and we proclaim reconciliation, we first proclaim He wants you to be reconciled, but then we proclaim, you are a sinner and you need to be reconciled. We need to preach against sin. Here in our text, it says that we've been alienated. Verse 29, although you, now he moves from the... Uh, verses 19 and 20, you can see as as almost God's overarching plan for reconciliation. Now he zooms in onto man. And yet, although you, making it very personal, addressing the Colossians, he says, you have been alienated. There was a time when you were estranged from God. And Ephesians 2, 12 gives us more insight. He says, remember at that time... You were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and a stranger to the covenants of province, having no hope and without God in the world. So being alienated from God is not knowing God. It's not, not have been, you have not been uh, received the blessing of knowing Him. He says, you were formerly hostile in mind. That is, you had a hostile disposition against God, a rebellious disposition, an unwillingness to yield to God, a readiness to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, as Romans 1, tells us. Romans 8, verse 7 tells us, the mind of the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so you need to be reconciled. A man is engaged in evil deeds, it says. Romans 3, I mean, there are so many passages you can turn to, but Romans 3, 13 says, Their throats is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of apse is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path, and the path of peace They have not known. The path of reconciliation, they have not known. There is no fear before their eyes. No reverence. No respect. That is who man is, apart from God, apart from Christ. And to proclaim Christ is we need to proclaim that. People need to know they need a Savior. And they need to know that there is a Savior and that they can be reconciled through His blood on the cross. And so we proclaim the plan of God's reconciliation and we proclaim man's need for reconciliation. In verse 22, we proclaim the goal of reconciliation. Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. And the goal of reconciliation is to be presented before God. Holy, that means sanctified. Holy means holy. Holy means set apart, consecrated. Blameless, that means unblemished, without any fault. Beyond reproach means beyond reproof, free from any accusation. irreproachable. People, do you know what that means? Colossians 2 tells us that the charges against us have been dismissed because Christ paid the penalty, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Any accusation. So we proclaim Christ, and the goal of our reconciliation is ultimately glorification. But that comes through justification and sanctification, the doctrines of justification and sanctification. And so, for us to proclaim Christ, we need to proclaim justification that our sin was imputed to Christ. On the cross. And his righteousness is imputed to us. The righteousness of Christ is given to us. We are therefore declared justified. It's a legal term. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We proclaim Justification, we proclaim righteousness. We proclaim people to be set free. Romans C who can bring a charge against God's elect? We are free from accusation. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father and who also intercedes for us. Because of Christ, we have been made righteous. We are justified. And therefore, there is no more accusation against more, No more separation or alienation from God. For I'm convinced, verse 38 of Romans 8, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created things will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we preach justification and we preach sanctification. That means progressive sanctification. That's what I have in mind. That is to become practically what we have been declared judicially. And 1 Corinthians 1:30 teaches us that Christ has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We are righteous, we are sanctified because we are in Christ. And our progressive sanctification is not. Trying in our own power to become more holy, it is to live out christ's holiness in us, and so we preach transformation. we preach that you need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind we need to preach we preach conformity to christ, the character of christ christ's likeness we preach. Holiness, that you need to be holy as the one who called you is holy. We preach change. People, you can change. I can change. God can change you. He will change you if you are reconciled to Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful hope that is. And so we preach the plan of Christ. We preach the need for, sorry, the plan of reconciliation in Christ. We We pray the need for reconciliation. We proclaim really the goal of reconciliation. And finally, we proclaim the path of reconciliation. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed under all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So we proclaim reconciliation through faith in Christ Jesus. We proclaim repentance of sin, and we proclaim faith in Christ Jesus. We appeal, we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.20. And not just momentary faith or belief, or a, but to continue in faith, to live a life of faith. Because the righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk tells us, Romans tells us, Galatians tells us, Hebrews tells us. And so we preach... That we need to come by faith, and we preach that we need to continue in faith. The perseverance in faith. So we need to preach that which firmly establishes us in our faith. We proclaim, we teach, we encourage that that which builds up our faith in Christ, that which establishes us. And so we preach, come to the church. Belong to a body of believers. Why? Because they, this is where you will be encouraged in your faith. This is where mutual ministry takes place. Discipleship. The exercise of our spiritual gifts so that we would build up one another. Edify the body. This is where we preach the equipping of the saints for ministry, as you use your giftingness to help others attain to the unity of the faith, the maturity of the faith, displaying the fullness of Christ. As we each do our part and we encourage one another and we serve one another and we build one another up, we become as a collective body more like Christ, the fullness of Him on display for the world. And so to proclaim Christ means we proclaim that. That which is necessary for us to establish ourselves in the faith. And we proclaim that which makes us steadfast in the faith. That is sound doctrine. Ephesians 4, again, verse 16 to 14 to 16 tells us that, that if we have sound doctrine, then we will attain to maturity in Christ. We preach or proclaim. That we should pray for one another. And we should pray that we would be steadfast. And we preach the hope of Christ coming. That he's coming. He says he's coming and he's coming soon. And that we will see him as he is and will be like him when we see him. We will be transformed. And when you have that hope, you are steadfast and you purify yourselves as he is pure. And we preach against false teachers. Those who seek to to lead people astray and away from the faith. And he says they're not moving away, really meaning persevering in the faith. And so we preach that we should... Persevere through trials. That trials will come, and we should not be surprised when they do, Scripture tells us. And we should actually count it joy because God is working in us. God is working what in us? Endurance. Steadfastness. So that we don't fall away. We preach that we need to be diligent to apply to our faith What? Moral excellence, to moral excellence, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love, who says, these qualities are yours, they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Christ. But the question that came to me, is if God is the one who saves us, he's the one who regenerates us, he's the one who bonds us from above, he's the one who seals us with his spirit, he's the one who quickens us to faith. Why does he say if? If indeed you continue. Are we not secure in our salvation? Well, we are, because our salvation is from Him. And Scripture tells us that no one will be able to snatch us from His hand, John 10, 28 and 29. And no one is able to separate us from His love, Romans 8, 38 39, and 39. And yet we find these warnings, if you continue in the faith, If you continue in my word, if you continue in his kindness, and all the warning passages in Hebrews, don't drift away from the knowledge of the truth. Be careful for the deceitfulness of sin. Why Why do we have these ifs? Well, I think there's two possible reasons. One is, Scripture is clear that in every congregation, there are wheat and there are tares. And we don't know who are wheat and who are tears. But God wants to remind us all, walk by faith. This is what it means to live by faith. Continue in the faith. Don't fall away. In 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were all not of us. What he's saying there is is there were some who left the faith, who turned their back, even though they made a profession and they may have lived a certain life. They may have all the the leaves of a Christian tree. They may have even imitation fruit on them. But when they fall away, when they turn away, when they renounce Christ, then he says, that they were never of us, because if they were of us, they would have remained with us. And so the reason why we have these ifs is for us to make sure, to examine ourselves, are we in the faith? Do we continue in the faith? And the second reason is, I think it's God's method, God's means to help us persevere, to motivate us to persevere. Listen, we all all fail. We all at some times may have doubts. But we are called to persevere, to come back. And to be honest, if it was not for Christ, if it was not for Him interceding for us, if it was not for His Holy Spirit present in us, you and I would not persevere. But the great news is Jesus perseveres. And so when we talk about the perseverance of the saints, I like what Spurgeon said. He equates it more like the perseverance of the Savior. He doesn't give up on us, even though we may fall short. And our inheritance is protected by God in heaven through faith. And so, people, when we proclaim Christ this year, when we fulfill our mission, we proclaim Christ as Lord and we proclaim Him as the Reconciler, that all things will be reconciled to Him. And we pray and we plead and we urge and we beg people to be reconciled to Christ by repentance and faith. Otherwise, they will come to a right relationship with Christ Through judgment. And God is keeping us. But our salvation, our redemption, our reconciliation is not a magic wand. It requires us to exercise our faith with mind, with heart, and with will. And so we proclaim Christ be reconciled, God's plan for reconciliation, man's need for reconciliation, God's goal for reconciliation, and the path of reconciliation is to persevere in faith. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for this message to us, Lord, that we have been reconciled with Christ through his work on the cross. Lord, I pray and give you thanks for those who have come to you by faith, who have repented of their sins and have entrusted their lives to them, Lord, for those whom you have born again, those whom you have baptized into your body. And Lord, there are those who may be here that have not done so, that do not know you that have not yet bowed the knee before you. And we pray, Father, that you, through your Spirit, would convict them of their sin and their need for a Savior. And, Lord, that you would save them and bring them to yourself, reconcile them to you. In Christ I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.